السلام عليك زين الأنبياء السلام عليكم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته I hope all of you are doing well and that you are remaining safe and remaining healthy Alhamdulillah this has proved to be a challenging time for so many and we hope that our discussions today will be a source of solace and to be a means for us to strengthen our faith and to be able to prepare for the meeting with our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have now reached book 40. And as Shu'aib had mentioned, this is the final book of the Ihyalumuddin. And we began with the Rub al-Muhlikat, the quarter on destructive vices. We began with book 21 many years ago. And alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us now to have reached book 40. And book 40, which is titled Kitab Dhikr al-Mawt wa ma ba'dahu, translated as on death and remembrance, on the remembrance of death and the afterlife. This is a very important book and we will shortly get into a little bit about why Imam Ghazali chose this title as the final book in the 40 books of his magnum opus, the Ihyalum al-Din. But Alhamdulillah, I wanted to begin by saying we had truly hoped that this would have been in person where we could have celebrated this khatam, this uh, finishing of uh, the Ihyalum uh, al and commemorate uh, all of the different lessons and different sessions and different retreats that we've had thus far. But Alhamdulillah, Qaddarullah, Ma Fa'al. We have to submit to the divine decree. And even though that we are only offering this online, that we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to deprive any of us of any of the blessings that would have come, what we to have been in person. And because of our contentment, inshallah, may Allah bless us all to be content with his divine decree. May Allah ta'ala increase the blessings such that we actually achieve more from learning online and in this way than we would have achieved in person. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is qadr ala kulli shay. He has power over all things subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he can give whomever he wants, whatever he wants, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us the greatest of blessings in this world and in the next. And let's just begin, inshallah ta'ala, with a, a fatiha and a special prayer for all of those who are following that might have that are sick or might have been sick or know someone that is sick or has lost a loved one and on the intention of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala heal all of those who are suffering and heal the sick and anyone that is returned to him we just received news that Sheikh Imad the Dean Abu Hijla uh, passed away and him and, and all of the others who have passed away recently may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive them of all of their sins accept all of their good deeds and bless them to receive the highest shafa'ah and intercession of our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless these meanings to penetrate into our hearts and may we benefit immensely together in, during this weekend bi khayran wal fa'afi bi sirr al-fatiha ila hadrat an-nabi so as was mentioned uh, we've now reached book 40 and because we're on the last book i want to remind ourselves briefly about the importance of the ihya 
and look at a few of these scholarly statements that have come from the great scholars before us. The well-respected Imam Muhyiddin al-Nawi that he said, and this is translated as the Ihya is almost like a Quran. Of course, it's not a Quran, and the scholars differ about why that's the case, but because, in a sense, it's like a tafsir of the Quran, and because of the impact that it has on us, this is a way that Imam al Nawi was that praising the Ihya al Madin. And Imam al Safadi was an 8th century, Hijri century scholar, that he said, were all of the books of Islam to be lost, if, if the Ihya remained, it would suffice in place of what had been lost. Were all the books of Islam to be lost, that in the Ihya to remain, it would suffice. And Imam al-Subki that he said, the seeker of the afterlife cannot do without it. The seeker of the afterlife cannot do without it. And then one of the later scholars, Imam Bakri Muhammad Shattah, that he said, were Allah to resurrect the deceased, they would only have advised the living with what is in the Ihya. Were Allah to resurrect the deceased, they would only have advised the living with what is in the Ihya. And this is a very timely subject when we talk about the remembrance of death and the afterlife. And so many of us know so many people personally, and we know so many people that know so many people that have returned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I know at least in relation to this Fulkir's life and this past period of time, more people have passed away that I know or that I know someone that knows in this past period of time that I remember during my entire life. There's never been a period like this and perhaps more in this period than combined in all of the years that, that I've lived and Allah Ta'ala knows best. So this is a very timely subject because learning the Ihyalumuddin is what we really need to do to meet, prepare to meet our Lord. Learning the Ihya and striving to put it into practice. And of course, this book that we are now going to be studying, Book 40, is... Uh, of the most important because of the very topic itself relating to the remembrance of death. And as we've been mentioning all along, the, the Ihya al-Madin is also in a sense a bit autobiog autobiographical. In that in a sense, it encapsulates the life of Imam Ghazali and universal attempts to universalize his experience by laying down these religious principles so you and I can learn them and put them into practice and achieve what Imam Ghazali achieved. And it's really important for us to understand that Imam Ghazali himself, uh, his life had a certain trajectory at first. And there was a way that he was living. And then he decided to change his life and to set out on a path to get near, to draw near to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And no matter how many times that we read his biography, that we still get inspired by it. And I want to quote now, and this is 
the quoting from that uh, McCarthy's translation of Al Munqadh, what Imam Ghazali said. And so he, Imam Ghazali says, and this is again in his book, Munqidh, Al Munqidh min al Dalal, uh, the English translation is titled Al Ghazali's Path to Sufism. When I had finished with these sciences, i.e. of the theologians and philosophers, I set out with aspiration upon the way of the Sufis, knowing that their way is only complete with knowledge and action. The summary of their knowledge is traversing the obstacles of the nafs and ridding oneself of its blameworthy traits and evil qualities in order to attain thereby a heart empty of all save of Allah and adorn oneself with the constant remembrance of Allah. Theory was easier for me than practice. Therefore, I began to learn from their knowledge, from the perusal of their books. It became clear to me that their most distinctive knowledge characteristic is something that can be attained not by study, but rather through tasting spiritual states and changing qualities. It had already become clear to me that my only hope of attaining felicity in the afterlife lay in taqwa and restraining my soul from desire. The beginning of all that I knew was to sever my heart's attachment to the world by withdrawing from this abode of delusion and turning to the abode of permanence and devoting myself completely to Allah. That I knew could be achieved only by shunning fame and fortune and fleeing from my preoccupations and attachments. Next, I attentively considered my circumstances, and I saw that I was immersed in attachments, which had encompassed me from all sides. I also considered my actions, the best of them being public and private instruction, and saw that in them I was applying myself to sciences unimportant and useless in the path of the hereafter. Then I reflected on my intention in my public teaching. And I saw that it was not directed purely to Allah, but rather was instigated and motivated by the quest for fame and widespread prestige. So I became certain that I was on the brink of a crumbling bank and already on the verge of falling into the fire, unless I set about mending my ways. I therefore reflected unceasingly for, on this for some time why I still had freedom of choice. One day I would firmly resolve to leave Baghdad and disengage myself from those circumstances on another day I would revoke my resolution. Thus I incessantly vacillated between the contending pole of worldly desires and the appeals of the afterlife for about six months. Starting with Rajab of the year 488, in this month the matter passed from choice to compulsion. For Allah put a lock on my tongue so that I was impeded from public teaching. I struggled with myself to teach for a single day, to gratify the hearts of the students who were frequenting my lectures, but my tongue would not utter a single word. Then, when I perceived my powerlessness, and when my capacity to make a choice had completely collapsed, I sought refuge in Allah Most High, as does a hard-pressed man who has no way out of his difficulty. And I was answered by him, who answers the needy man when he calls on him. He made it easy for my heart to turn away from fame and fortune, family, children, and associates. I announced that I had resolved to leave from Mecca, 
all the while planning secretly to travel to Syria. I departed Baghdad after I had distributed what wealth I had, only saying what was needed for my support and the sustenance of my children. So Imam Ghazali then left. And then we know that he tells us a little bit about his time when he was in Damascus. And so he says, then I entered Damascus and resided there for nearly two years. My only occupation was seclusion and solitude and spiritual exercise and combat with a view to devoting myself to the purification of my soul and cultivation of virtues and cleansing my heart for the remembrance of Allah Most High. In the way I had learned from the writings of the Sufia. In the course of those periods of solitude, things impossible to enumerate or detail in depth were unveiled to me. This much I shall mention, that benefit may be derived from it. I knew with certainty that the Sufis are those who uniquely follow the way to Allah Most High. Their mode of life is the best of all, their way the most direct of ways, and their ethic the purest. Indeed, were one to combine the insight of the intellectuals, the wisdom of the wise, the lore of the scholars, versed in the mysteries of revelation in order to change a single item of Sufi conduct and ethic and to replace it with something better, no way to do so would be found. For all of their motions and silences, exterior and interior, are learned from the light of the niche of, the niche of prophecy. And beyond the light of prophecy, there was no light on earth from which illumination can be attained. And so he indicates here with these words, his path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I don't think we really understand how difficult that was for him to leave that position that he had at the Nidhamiya and to set out and to, uh, to take this path and to sever all of those attachments so that he could attain sincerity and devote himself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is one of the great reasons this book is so important because it was during this period that he starts to write the Ahiyad al-Madin. And it's unclear exactly when he finished it, but while he's experiencing these great experiences, he, was, he put pen to paper. And so here we have in these blessed words, with his bless, these blessed words that we have that came from that radiant heart of his, that which we can benefit from 900 plus years later for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he spent his life after that dedicating himself to propagating what is called the ilm tariq al-akhirah, which is the thrust of the ihya, the science of the path of the hereafter. Now we've repeated this term over and over again through these lectures because this is the thrust of the ihya, the science of the path of the hereafter. Ilm, tariq, al-akhirah. Three words. Ilm here, knowledge or science, because it's systematized. Tariq is the way, and the akhirah is the afterlife. And so even in this phrase itself, in this, this description that he gave for this knowledge that is in this book, it tells us something about what the ihya really is supposed to be to us. It's supposed to revive that knowledge in our hearts. And it is this knowledge, which is the knowledge that we need when we meet our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why that it had been said, were the, those who had, were deceased to be resurrected, they would have only advised the living with what is in there. Yeah. And I want to just quote here also, and we'd mentioned this before as well, but it's, it's a beautiful story. 
the passing of Imam Ghazali. And we know that Imam Ghazali that lived about 55 years and his brother Ahmed, that Sheikh Ahmed, who was also an accomplished scholar uh, and a very pious individual, is that he tells the story of the Imam's final moments. And he says, on Monday at the time of dawn prayer, my brother Abu Hamid performed his ablutions, so he made wudu. And then he said, hand me my shroud, my kefen. He took it, kissed it, placed it on his two eyes, and then said, I hear and obey the command to enter into the presence of the king. He then spread out his legs, faced the direction of prayer, and died shortly before sunrise. La ilaha illallah. Husnud khatima. And that is a sign of a, of a good seal. And this is what we want. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us all with a husnul khatima. Ya Rabbil Adameen. And this is why we come together to learn and to help each other practice this knowledge is so that we can all be granted when we take our last breath, a husnul khatima and a good seal. So this is book 40. And we have previously talked about the significance of 40 and that, that 40 comes up uh, that throughout a number of different things in our deen and that we have a beautiful prophetic statement of our Prophet that says, whoever is sincere to Allah for 40 days, the springs of wisdom will pour forth from his heart to his tongue. The Prophet also said, the completion of station in Ribat is 40 days. Whoever remains for 40 days and refrains from selling or buying, tending to nothing else except one's needs, he will be sinless like the day his mother gave birth to him. That moreover, it is never that Allah needed Adam's clay for 40 days. That according to that a prophetic tradition, we know that the fetus goes through three distinct stages of 40 days until it is gifted a spirit. That in sacred law, it is the average time for purity from postnatal bleeding. A whole genre of 40 hadith collections emerge from that the Prophet's words, sallallahu whosoever among my people learns by heart 40 hadith about religion will be resurrected on the day of judgment along with the religious scholars and jurists. And that we know that our Prophet ﷺ received his first revelation at the age of, after completing 40 years. And then some even point to the letter Mim and its numerical value, which is 40. And so that this number 40 also symbolizes in relation to human life, the point at which the curve of life turns back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Generally speaking, before the age of 40, that we tend to feel relatively young, having attachments to the world and still hoping in the future. And we oftentimes think about death, but it's oftentimes not until after this age that death becomes more of a, a reality to us and more readily enters into our consciousness. And so that 40 is a very important number. And that in the context of one of its meanings relates to habituation. It relates to this 
age of spiritual realization. And it relates to these 40 books that he laid down, which are there in order to prepare us to meet our Lord, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and to prepare for his meeting in the afterlife, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the other thing that's important that we talk about here is that we come to understand that book 40 of the Ahiyalumadeen, we don't want to see it as merely an appendix to his work, as if that he has somehow uh, dealt with a whole series of other topics in the first 39 books, and then in book 40 that he's just going to include some type of that appendix on death and the afterlife. Uh, actually, that it is far from the truth, that nothing is arbitrary in Imam Ghazali's book. He was very skillful in how he laid it all out. And he gave us this, this, he laid it out intentionally for a specific purpose. And one of the ways that we can understand this is that the, the book 40 is really the culmination of the Ihya. Because it's the summit of the spiritual life. It signifies the transition for this world to the next world, preparing to meet our Lord, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So everything else that comes before it in the first 39 books leads up to book 40, which is about death and the afterlife, remembering death and preparing for the afterlife. And if we know and put into practice what comes before it, we'll be ready to meet our Lord. And from here, if we can understand that, that we can understand why this topic is so important and why even though it is oftentimes uncomfortable to talk about, that for a believer, it's essential to not only talk about, but to recollect, to remember, to reflect upon in depth, in detail, and to really, really profoundly that think about our mortality. This is of the utmost importance. And so inshallah, we're going to read Imam Ghazali's introduction. And it's powerful. And it's meant to shake us up a little bit. It's meant to instill in us fear. And not just some type of surface level fear that we don't do anything about it but a fear that motivates us to reflect on the fact that we will take our last breath so that we can then prepare to meet our Lord, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as we will see, one of the greatest benefits of reflecting upon death is that it severs our attachments to this world, to the various things that are getting in our way of living a life of getting close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is very healthy spiritually. And I know oftentimes in Western culture, when people talk about death, they just kind of, kind of a shh, shh, like, don't talk about that. I'm going to live time 100 years old. You might even hear people say that. And Allahu Adam, how long someone's going to live. But even if they live to 100 years old, how long does that really, if they, once you return to Allah Ta'ala, 
how long will it have seemed that you actually really did live? Even if you lived to 120 years old, how long when you take your last breath, will it seem that you actually have really lived? It will seem significantly shorter than all of those years that you actually really did live. And when we return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is that everything that happened in this world will seem like said, is it like a dream? Like dreams when we sleep or like a passing shadow. The truly intelligent person is not that deceived by it, i.e. the world. And it's not dreams because it's very real. The decisions that we made will have consequences in the next world. So we will read, inshallah ta'ala, uh, Imam Ghazali's introduction. And this is on page one of the translation by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Arad, a.k.a. that T.J. Winter. And this is a book that needs to be on the shelf of every Muslim. If you have the ability to purchase this, the Islamic Tech Society translation, highly, highly recommended that you purchase. Highly recommend everybody acquire a copy of this and not only have it on the shelf, more importantly, to read it and to benefit from it. And the translation is so good that we're just going to read the English. So he says here, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, praise be God. With who death did break the necks of tyrants, shattering with it the backs of Persia's kings, cutting short the aspirations of the Caesars, whose hearts were long averse to recalling death until the true promise came to them and cast them into the pit. From the loftiest of palaces into the deepest graves they passed, and from the light of the cradle into the sepulchre's gloom. From dallying with servant girls and boys into sustaining insects and worms they passed, and from reveling in food and drink into wallowing in the earth from the friendliness of company into the forlornness of solitude and from the soft couch into woeful perdition. See if they had found any strength and protection from death or taken against it a barrier and refuge. See if you can perceive a single man of them or hear from them the slightest sound. So all glory to him who is unique in power and authority, who has taken to himself all claim to permanence, abasing all forms of creation through the extinction which he has written for them then appointing death as a redemption for the god-fearing and as the promise to them of a meeting the tomb made he a prison for the damned a cramped goal goal for them until the day of decision and judgment for his is the power to bestow manifest blessings and to take vengeance through irresistible acts of requital he is the, his is the thanksgiving in the heavens and the earth his is the praise in the former world and the afterlife May many blessings and most abundant salutations be invoked upon Muhammad of the clear miracles and the evident signs and upon his family and companions. Now it behooves him for whom death is his destruction, the earth is his bed, the worm his intimate, Munkar and Nakir his companions, the tomb his abode and the belly of the earth his resting place, and the arising his tryst in heaven and hell are his destiny, that he should harbor no thought or recollection but of death. No preparedness or plan should he have save for it. And his every expectation, concern, energy, weight, and anticipation should be for its sake alone. It is right that he should account himself among the dead and see himself as one of the people of the graves. For all that comes is certainly near. The distant is what never comes. The Prophet has said, The intelligent man is he who judges himself and acts for what follows death. Preparation for something can never be easy. 
unless its memory is constantly renewed in the heart. And this can only be done through reminding oneself by paying attention to those things which cause it to be recalled and by looking to those matters which tell of it, of the business of death with its preludes and consequences and conditions of the next world, the resurrection of heaven and hell, we shall mention that which the servant of Allah must repeatedly bring to mind and keep with him in his thinking and his meditation. So this may act as an encouragement to preparedness. So he's getting right to why he's talking like this, why he's mentioning what he's mentioning as an encouragement to preparedness for the journey to what follows death is near at hand. And only a little of life remains, yet of this the people are inattentive. Their reckoning draweth nigh for mankind while they turn away in heedlessness. We shall mention that which relates to death in two parts. So if you think about this, oftentimes when we look at people of dunya, he mentioned the example here of a Persian king or that a, a Byzantine king. But think about people that we know in this world that are very wealthy that can go to the best doctors and that have the best health care and go to the very best hospitals and have all of the wealth that they can spend to protect themselves from that sudden death and so forth and so on. But still, people die. This is something that we know with certainty. And this is why Allah Ta'ala referred to death with the word yaqeen in the Quran. Worship your Lord until certainty, i.e. death, comes to you. This is something that every single one of us is certain about. No matter how much wealth we have, no matter how many, how much that control we think that we have over the world when we're really not in control at all, death is going to strike every single last one of us. And that is really important for us to reflect upon. It doesn't just strike the poor. That it doesn't just strike that, uh, that those who, that aren't well known in society every single human being will have their portion of it. And knowing this is our reality, and we all know that we're going to return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it only makes sense then, logically speaking, for us to prepare for it, for us to do what we need to do to strengthen our faith, to do what we need to do to put things in place, i.e. righteous actions, and do what is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that when we return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we are ready. And so that we are from those who love to meet their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And thus that our Lord loves to meet us. So this is what he says in terms of his introduction. And he then goes on to speak about the three different types of people in relation to remembrance of death as he tends to classify so this is his, he's going to classify that the various types of people in relation to reflection and remembrance of death. And the first is not the state that we want to be in. The man, the first is the man engrossed in the world does not remember death or if he does, it is with regret for his world and he busies himself with disparaging death. The remembrance of death increases such a one and nothing but distance from Allah. There are people who become repulsed by thinking about death. And that panic and just consciously move it out of their thoughts. 
so that they can just enjoy the world. Any hint of something spoiling their partaking in the things of this world, they run from and they just completely that move it from their mind. And this is not a good state to be in. This is the lowest of the three. Then the middle stage is what Imam Ghazali calls, and that first stage is called the Munhamak, the man engrossed. Then you have the Ta'ib, the Ta'ib, the penitent man. Who is he? He recalls death frequently. So that fear and apprehension might thereby proceed from his heart, making his repentance complete. It may be that he is in fear of death, lest it carry him off before his repentance is complete and before his provisions for the journey are replenished. He is excusable in his aversion to death and is not included in the saying of the Prophet whosoever would abhor meeting with Allah, Allah abhors meeting with him. Whoever doesn't want to meet Allah, whoever, Allah doesn't want to meet him. But only fears the meeting with Allah passing him by as a result of his deficiency and remissness. In other words, is that he wants to have more time in the world to get himself together to prepare for the meeting with his Lord. He is like the man who is made late for a meeting with his beloved by busying himself with preparations for the encounter in a way that will find approval. He is not deemed to be reluctant about the meeting. The distinguishing mark, though, of the penitent man is his constant preparation for this matter and his lack of any other concern. Were he to be otherwise, he would associate with the man engrossed in the world. So this is the starting point. We can all try to be like this individual, and then there's various degrees, of course. We should always remember, though, the distinguishing mark, preparation for this affair, day in and day out. As for the third and highest category that he calls the Arif, the Gnostic, he remembers death constantly because for him, it is the tryst with his beloved. La ilaha illallah. It's the meeting with his beloved. And a lover never forgets the appointed time for meeting the one he loves. Usually such a man considers death slow and coming. He thinks of it very differently. Usually such a man considers death slow and coming and is happy upon its advent that he might have been done, that he might have done with the abode of sinners and be borne away into the presence of the Lord of the worlds. Such was the case with Hudayfa, of when it, was, when it is related that when death came, he said, a dear friend came, has come at a time of poverty. Whoever repents at such a moment as this shall not succeed, O Lord God, should you know that poverty is dearer to me than wealth, and sickness more beloved to me than health, and death more dear to me than life, then make my death easy for me until I meet you. What kind of individual is this? Is this? This is someone who that was trained in the madras of Sayyidina Muhammad He experienced the tarbiyah of Sayyidina Muhammad This is how they were. And we tend to forget this is one of the greatest sunnahs of the Prophet of all. Preferring the next world over this world. And this that quality was in the Sahaba in ways that it wasn't in anyone else after the companion, after the prophets and the messengers.
this, these individuals that look at things very differently. And so that we have to see where we are in these three categories. And for that highest category, this is something that's possible for every single one of us. We can reach a state where we see death as a blessing. And this is what we want to just quote uh, very briefly. I know it's 10 o'clock. We started five minutes late, so we're just going to take an extra five minutes. We'll end at 10.05, inshallah. Um, but we want to just look at a few of the narrations that indicate the excellence or the merit of the remembrance of death and end and show and how that relates to the frame that we should have in relation to death. And the first is that our Prophet said that remember often the ender of pleasures, by which he meant that remembering death. Remember often the ender of pleasures. This is a, an encouragement from the Prophet. And then there's a hadith that the Prophet said, death is a precious gift. To the believer. The Prophet also said, وسلم, death is an atonement for every Muslim. And then we have in some of the other, uh, one of the other narrations uh, of the Athar, Ka'ab said, Man dunya wa Whoever knows death, the calamities of the world, and all of its worries will be easy for him to bear. And then that Sophia came, that a woman came to say to Aisha, she narrates that a woman came to say to Aisha, and she complained about the hardness of her heart. And then Sayyid Aisha said, remember death often, and your heart will become soft. So she did this, and her heart became soft, and she came and thanked Sayyida Aisha. There are that multiple narrations that uh, indicate um, the... Uh, merit of remembering death but what we have to really think here is is that the frame that oftentimes we think is associated that with the remembrance of death is not the frame that we find in our deen that we have a very specific frame whereby which that we think about death and we think about that the recollection of it and the greatest frame that we can understand this is to reach the point where, according to that hadith of the Prophet that we see death as a precious gift. But that's only from someone whose the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has come to dominate their heart. But that's possible. And we should know that that's possible. And we should strive for it. Because the purpose of life is to come to know Allah. And we know that as long as we're here in this world, is that... We won't have full realization of our ma'rifah. Even if we have ma'rifah in this world, it's more complete in the next world when we meet our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in other words, death is the means for the lover to meet the one he loves. And then the long list of benefits that it helps us overcome our desires so we can devote ourselves to Allah. It helps sever our connection to the world so we can prepare to meet Allah. It is a release from the struggle with one's soul, one's desires, and shaitan. It is an atonement for sin. It makes enduring the tribulations of this world easier, and it softens the heart. And then the next question is how to bring about 
the recollection of death in the heart? This is a very important question, and this is something that, that we need to know. And one of the primary ways that Imam Ghazali mentions to do this is to think about people around you, people that you knew that didn't expect death to come to them and death did come to them. Think about people that you know, imagining them with their strength and when they have the ability to speak and to talk and to walk and to do things. And then all of a sudden, they're no longer there. Reflecting deeply upon about people we know and then bringing that into our own state, thinking about that our, about our own mortality. This is the way to do that. And he says, to the extent that a man recalls another and pictures clearly in his mind his state and how he died and imagines his form and remembers his sprightliness and how he used to come and go and the care which he devoted to living to continuing and his forgetfulness of death and how he was deceived by the propitious means of his subsistence and his trust in his strength and his youth and his inclination to laughter and fun, his heedlessness of the imminent death and the speedy destruction which lay before him, how he used to go hither and thither and now and that now his feet and joints have rotted away. How he used to speak, well, now the worm has devoured his tongue, and so forth and so on. He goes into great detail for us to think about that, holding fast to these and other similar ideas, and also entering graveyards and seeing ill people. So thinking about people that we know that have passed, and also entering graveyards, spending time in the graveyard, and seeing ill people. Is the way to refresh the remembrance of death in the heart until it takes possession of it and stands before one's eyes. At this point, one will almost be ready for it and will shun the world of vanity. Otherwise, a remembrance with the superficial aspect of the heart and a sweet tongue will be of little avail in warning and informing. However content in one's heart may be with some worldly thing, one should at once recall that it must needs, that it must needs be parted with. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that give us understanding to that bless us to that benefit from what Imam Ghazali is saying and to prepare us for the meal with our Lord. Give us tawfiq in all of our affairs.